Well, good morning. Uh, It is good to see you guys this morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 3 this morning. So if you'll open the book of Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. If you'll read along with me, Luke writes chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along with whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Will you pray with me this morning? Father God, your son, Jesus taught us to pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, I pray this morning, Lord, that you would give us a fresh picture of your grandeur, of your glory, and of your majesty. Uh, Father, I pray in a fresh way this morning that you would show us just how large and how big you are, how mighty and how loving you are. And Father, we ask that you would even show us in a fresh way exactly the kind of kingdom that you're hoping to bring and the kindness of ways that you're hoping to break into our culture and our world as you would use us to accomplish your purposes and to advance your kingdom. Father, pray this morning, Lord, that your will would be done in our lives and that your son, Jesus, would be exalted and that we'd see him in a fresh light. I pray that, Lord, you'd give us ears to hear, you'd give us a heart to be responsive to you. And more than anything, Lord, I pray that we could just see your glory in a fresh way this morning. And that you would remove distractions, you would remove disappointments, and that you would allow us just to hear and to see you and to respond to you, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Well, for you guys, I don't know, when you guys were kids, what it is that you aspired to grow up to be one day. Uh, some of you guys may not have known then, and you may not still know today, is exactly what you're going to be when you grow up. Uh, I don't know if any of you guys were like me that thought about uh, being a firefighter, uh, if you guys ever thought about uh, being a princess, or if you guys ever thought about being a doctor. I don't know what it was for you. Uh, maybe some of y'all thought, even at an early age, I want to be a Texas A&M Aggie, all right? Uh, that, that seed got planted to me in sixth grade because a girl I liked liked A&M, and so all of a sudden, I liked A&M, all right? So, um, but I don't know what it was for you that you thought when you were a kid, when I grew up, here's what I want to be. Uh, my own wife, Marcy, will tell you that she wasn't exactly sure of what she wanted to be when she grew up. But there was one thing that she fixated on. There was one thing that she was sure of. And that was this, that one day she hoped that she could go past the door that said for employees only. All right. Uh, she didn't really know in terms of vocation or in terms of jobs, what it is exactly that she wanted to do. But she knew at the places that she frequented, McDonald's, Chick-fil-A, Wendy's, Roses, as she grew up, that there was one thing that she knew. One day she wanted to move past those doors that were for employees only, because if it was for employees only, then surely something great stood on the other side of that, right? That was kind of her early dream, all right? And so parents really had that awkward uh, balancing act of not wanting to squelch someone's dreams, their kids, right? But also wanting to help maybe expand their dreams to something a little bit bigger, right? Uh, And so her mom kind of walked through that stage of going, well, that's wonderful, but maybe your future will hold something even greater than just entry through one door, right? Maybe there's doors that will come that you'll walk through that will be even grander than 
those dreams, all right? In fact, I think that, that issue and that tendency to maybe not dream very big kind of grew and, and uh, occurred in her family because even her own brother had one dream growing up, and that was to become the garbage man, all right? And so uh, if you think about it for a little boy, though, is there anything more grand and anything more marvelous than becoming a garbage man? And here's why. Uh, for a little boy, you could drive a massive truck, all right? I mean, as a young child, that's all you want, right? A giant truck that makes all kinds of noises and picks up large items, right? I mean, that just seemed amazing. Even more so, you didn't even have to wear a seatbelt, right? You could just ride on the back of that truck and do that every day, day in and day out. That seemed marvelous, all right? And so her little brother, literally, as uh, the truck would come through the neighborhood, he would hear it. He'd come to the window. He would begin to stare out, watching that truck through every little house move from down the street before it was finally out of his sight and he couldn't look any further. And then for the next hour, he would pretend to be the garbage man in their home, right? Picking up trash, moving throughout. And it was kind of nice because he was kind of picking up some chores, doing some chores. But by and large, though, his mom had that same challenge of how do I not squelch his dreams, but how do I help him dream a little bit bigger, right? How do I value this, but help him see that maybe there's something even larger and even bigger in his future than this, as meaningful and as significant as that job is? Ultimately, I think even as we grow up, a lot of us will move past those childhood dreams that we had, but I think all of us still struggle to dream big. I'll tell you guys for myself, I'm not the giant, the biggest dreamer in the world, all right? I I think in uh, small steps, I think, what do we do next week? What do we do next year? I don't necessarily think about giant dreams and giant visions. That's just not the way uh, often I feel wired. And yet I think all of us really stand and have a need to learn to dream bigger. And I think the reasons we don't dream big are really twofold. I think one, I think often we don't really have the biggest view of God. Our dreams are not God-sized in in reality because often our God is not that big. As we think of the world, as we think of the future, we often have a picture of a God who's not that large and not that mighty. And so sometimes our dreams aren't that big. I think also sometimes we get content really with what the world offers. And so therefore, often what happens to a lot of us is that our dreams get smaller and smaller because they're so worldly. And ultimately, I think what Acts chapter 3 this morning is going to do in this fresh story in a moment like this is going to come in. And I think for us, show us just how large our God is and cause us to have a moment where we, in a sense, have an opportunity to think a little bit bigger. In a way to possibly dream a little bit bigger that God might have something even bigger in store for our lives, doors that we could walk through that maybe we can't even dream about. In fact, what we're going to see in Acts chapter 3 this morning as we walk through it is that Luke is going to set up for us a situation that for the nation of Israel was absolutely familiar. In fact, if the nation of Israel accepted the situation we're going to see in Acts chapter 3 is absolutely normal. And yet in their familiarity with it, what they're going to miss is that the situation that they thought was normal was absolutely insulting. They're going to miss really, in many ways, something that God was dying and desperate to do because they had simply overlooked something and become some normal with what was in front of them. So God is going to step in and really going to open their eyes in a fresh way and cause them to dream a little bit bigger. Look with me, if you will, chapter three, as we see a situation that frankly is just insulting. Look with me, if you will, chapter three, verse one. Luke tells us that now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. Uh, as they went up to the temple, there were several gates they could go through. And this path that they're going to walk is one that they would have walked over and over again. In fact, this would have been such a normal situation as men and women would have approached the temple to pray. And the great question is, as they did this at the hour of prayer, one of the questions you have as you walk through this text is exactly what might they have been praying for? I think for the nation of Israel at this time, they were fixated on one thing and one thing in particular. In fact, Jesus will speak of that one thing in Acts chapter one, verse three, when he says this. Luke tells us in Acts one, verse three, that he, Jesus, presented himself alive, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. 
that ultimately post-resurrection in the short time that Jesus had with his disciples, his primary concern, one of the primary things that he wanted to teach them about was the kingdom of God. In fact, it will be the disciples' concern also in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. The disciples were asking Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? As the book of Acts opens the sequel to the gospel of Luke, Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God. The disciples are asking all about the kingdom of God. In fact, Peter is going to speak of it further later on in our chapter uh, in verses 19 to 21. Notice what Peter will say after this great miracle. He says to the nation in verse 19, Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. The word kingdom doesn't get used in verses 19 to 21, but Peter is expressly referring to that kingdom that Jesus spoke of in Acts 1 that the disciples were asking about in Acts 1. The same kingdom that the prophets were speaking of all throughout the Old Testament from Genesis all the way to the end of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi. The kingdom of God really was the nation of Israel's primary focus and it was probably most likely their primary focus even in prayer. What they were praying for was that God's kingdom would come. In fact, Jesus taught his disciples to pray like this, hallowed be your name, Uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus taught his disciples to pray for the kingdom to come on earth. And so here we are, Acts chapter one, and here we are in Acts chapter three now. And I think the nation of Israel, the disciples, everyone is praying for and concerned with the kingdom of God. And yet I think what's going to happen is they're going to miss it. Ultimately, where they're thinking and what they're thinking of in regards to the kingdom is not necessarily wrong, but I think it wasn't large enough. So you think about the apostles, they themselves were excited about Jesus' resurrection and eventual return to set up a kingdom because they were excited to rule on thrones with him. They were excited about the power play that was in front of them, all right? Even the nation of Israel at large was excited about the coming kingdom because they were excited for Roman rule and oppression to be removed. If Jesus would come and set up his kingdom, then the Romans wouldn't keep uh, beating down on them. They'd have freedom, they'd have autonomy, they'd have power. I think everyone was concerned about the kingdom of God, but everyone was concerned with very selfish lenses, all right? Everyone was looking out for what the kingdom could do for them. And I think ultimately, therefore, their dream of the kingdom, their dream of what God could do in their life had become narrower and narrower and narrower. And I think what Jesus wants to do here through the apostles is stretch their view of the kingdom and stretch our view as well as to what God could do in our lives. It's going to begin really as they are praying at the temple, but it'll continue really with a picture of a beggar at the beautiful gate. Notice verse two. Luke continues on that a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful. In order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple, Luke will describe a picture here that was daily. Uh, every day these guys would walk a path to the temple to pray, and every day they'd walk right by this guy who was sitting there, lame from birth, there daily to beg alms. All right. In fact, I think this was such a normal, such a routine picture that I think for many who were passing by, this guy had eventually over time begun to just blend into the landscape. He was there every day. Friends would bring him every day. Every day he would be there. And it was just like the, the temple itself, just like the gate itself that they would go through. He was just part of the landscape. I don't think they noticed him after a while. And in, in their normalcy of the situation, as they looked at it, I think they missed how absolutely insulting this picture was. Ultimately, I think Luke is going to use a lot of irony as he describes the situation, because here you have a man who's lame since birth. He's been this way since the moment he was born. This wasn't due to sin. This wasn't due to accident. This was very much not at all what God intended when he first created humanity, Adam and Eve. What he intended in the very beginning was not disability. It was not disease. It was not death. And yet what we see here in this very picture is a place in which we would say that the kingdom was crying to break out. 
In fact, even for the nation of Israel, they should have known from the prophet Isaiah that when the kingdom comes, this is what will happen. Isaiah chapter 35, verses two and six, Isaiah says of this coming kingdom, they will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. And then the lame will leave like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. As Isaiah pictures the kingdom that is coming when Messiah will come and set up his rule over the earth, he says, this is what's going to happen. The lame will leap, the mute will speak. If you want to know what the kingdom is going to look like when it comes, he says that this is a great picture for you. So imagine the irony here. You have men and women every day passing this guy by, heading to the temple to pray for the kingdom to come, but they're not at all concerned with the kingdom breaking in for this guy. If the kingdom needed to break in anywhere, it was for this guy. And what you have happening at the gate that is called beautiful is a picture that is not beautiful in any way, shape, or form. In fact, you have the nation of Israel, by and large, just bypassing this guy. We're going to see here in just a minute, no one's even paying attention to him. (laughs) No one even notices him. Very few even speak to him. And so here you have this picture of a gate that is beautiful, adorned with bronze. He's likely here because this is the gate that most people would go through. And so he's positioned himself in a place where he has the greatest possibility to beg alms and receive money. And here he is having to beg money just so he has something to eat. And ultimately, I thought about that picture as you imagine this guy who's lame from birth being carried to be set out of the temple to beg alms. What a poor cover up for his situation, right? The greatest need he has, the only thing he can do at the moment is just beg alms. And it's, it's a very poor cover up for the situation that is as dire as it is for him. Uh, ultimately, I kind of thought of a very poor uh, paradigm, a very poor analogy, but I thought of uh, if you've ever had a, uh, a day coming up one night and all of a sudden that morning you wake up and there's just a giant zit on your face, right? And you think, Lord, I know you're sovereign, but how is it this morning that this shows up, right? And even us guys, we'll do the week cover up that we have to. We'll get some makeup. We'll do whatever we have to do to cover this thing up, all right? And you girls will do the same, but the reality is no matter how well you do it, it is a weak cover up. Everyone sees it, right? It is just talking and screaming at people, all right? Uh, and, and I I think ultimately this guy is in that same kind of predicament. All right. And it's a very poor analogy. right? But he's in that same predicament. He's begging alms, but it is a weak cover up. It does nothing for his situation than just get him through the day. And here is the nation of Israel walking by this guy day in and day out. And I don't think anyone's paying attention to him. I don't think anyone's given him the time of day. In fact, notice what happens really as we look at the next part of the story is Peter and John are going to walk by. And I think what we're going to see is we're going to see a situation that had been so normal that it was insulting. And we're going to see God step in through his apostles and really interrupt what had been so normal. Uh, One person told me one time that when the glory of God shows up, it is an interruption to people's casual view of God. That when God shows himself and his glory off, it is an interruption to people's casual view of him. It makes you go, oh my goodness. You are so much bigger than I thought you were and so much more able than I thought you were. And, and God is going through Peter and John. They're going to show to this beggar and to the nation of Israel at large that God is much bigger than they think he is. And they ought to dream a lot bigger because the kingdom is far more than they think it is. And so notice what happens here. Ultimately, is we're going to see that God is going to recognize this guy. Notice the dialogue, verse uh, three and four. Luke tells us that when the beggar saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed their gaze on him and said, look at us. Look at us. It's fascinating that this is what the dialogue is. If you think of all the things that they could have said to him, this is not the first thing I thought they would have said, right? And that I think gives you a picture as to what had been happening, all right? I think as they walked by the guy, they actually fixed their gaze. They looked directly at him. And their first words to to him is, hey, look at us. Look up at us. Why? I think ultimately the reason why is that they, people have been walking by this guy day in and day out. 
maybe giving money, maybe not, but I don't think anyone ever looked directly at him. I think for even those that may have given him money, I think they just threw money and they just kept on walking. Rarely did they engage him, rarely did they talk to him, and rarely did anyone ever look at him in the eyes. And so they have to say, hey, look up, look at us. And so he turns up and he looks at him. And I was thinking about the guy and thinking about the situation. And I think the hardest thing he ever went through was not being born lame. The hardest experience he ever had was not that he couldn't walk from birth. I think the hardest experience that he ever had also wasn't that he had to beg alms day in and day out. I think the hardest experience he ever had was the fact that day in and day out, no one ever looked at him. No one ever considered him a person enough to actually look him in the eyes and address him. They just walked on by and treated him like part of the landscape. And I think in that he lost his dignity. And in that, I think he felt almost dehumanized in a way that you cannot imagine. It wasn't the begging alms. It wasn't being the born lame that really was so hard. I think it was the fact that no one ever actually looked at him and he didn't expect anyone to look at him either. So he just buried his head and he put his head down. I think the situation that he is in really connects to a book I read. I don't know if any of you guys have read the book Unbroken. Uh, a lady named Laura Hildenbrand writes it. Same lady who wrote uh, Sea Biscuit. Amazing story of two soldiers in uh, one of the world wars. And, and uh, one of the guys actually was an Olympic gold medal runner. Uh, he had placed in the Olympics. It was a fabulous record setter. And yet he would go and be drafted into war and be on a bomber plane that would be headed toward a, a bombing situation and would go down in the open ocean. And this guy would be in the open ocean for 40 days, over 40 days right? Uh, just drifting. And, and Laura will write of their situation in a very fascinating way. And he, she says this, the crash of the green Hornet, which was their bomber had left Louie and Phil in the most desperate physical extremity without food, water, or shelter. All right. For 40 days, they're on an open raft, just drifting uh, as the tides will take them. And so they're having to fish off this raft. They're having all kinds of excessive sunburn, all kinds of uh, hallucinations, all kinds of drought because they can't drink the water. They can't purify the water. Amazing story of survival. All right. Uh, but eventually after more than 40 days, they will drift uh, to an island, hoping that it'll be a peaceful place. But it's actually a place held by and controlled by Japanese. Uh, and the lady writes, but on this island, the guards sought to deprive them of something that had sustained them, even as all else had been lost in dignity. For 40 days, they'll be on the open ocean fighting for their survival. They'll land at an island where they'll be imprisoned at a, at a war, war crimes camp. And there they will be tortured and humiliated. So she says there they were trying to take them uh, of what they had lost, which was their dignity. She writes, this self-respect and sense of self-worth, the innermost armament of the soul lies at the heart of humanness. To be deprived of it is to be dehumanized and to be cleaved from and cast below mankind. To have your dignity stripped away from you is to become something less than human. And so she says that this prison camp, as they were humiliated, as they were tortured, as their dignity was taken away, they become something less than human. Men subjected to dehumanizing treatment experience profound wretchedness and loneliness and find that hope is almost impossible to retain. Without dignity, identity is erased, and in its absence, men are defined not by themselves, but by their captors and the circumstances in which they are forced to live. I think as she writes that and she ends that quote, I think she's describing in a perfect way the situation that this lame guy at the beautiful gate faced day in and day out. He was defined by his circumstances and his captivity and not by his face, by his name or his voice. In fact, as he'll be healed miraculously at the end of the story, if you guys notice, how will the people refer to him? They don't know his name. They just know this is the guy who used to sit lame and begging for alms every day by the temple gate. They know him only by his circumstances and only by his captivity and what had imprisoned him. They don't know him by his name. 
They had walked by him day in and day out and treated him like a nameless person, a faceless person, and a voiceless person. And in that, I think he experienced something that was far harder than being lame or having to beg. As he was disregarded and dismissed and really therefore became less than human in many ways. I think for some of us, I think it's no coincidence, nor is it ironic, as Peter will go on and discuss particularly the reality of what Jesus Christ endured, that and it's not ironic at all that Jesus will be cast in the same kind of way. Notice verses 14 and 15. Notice that Jesus could very much identify with this beggar. Verse 14. As he speaks to the nation, Peter says, but you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But you put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. What is Peter saying? Peter's saying that Jesus Christ very much could identify as one who is nameless, voiceless, and faceless. As one who is disowned, not worthy to be considered and regarded for life, Jesus could very much identify with the beggar. And I think in that, what we see even in Jesus Christ is that he is one that really, when we talk about the gospel, what it is, is a great reversal. All right. It's a great reversal in that as Jesus was disowned and rejected, what he's going to therefore then offer is reconciliation and an open hand and an invitation. As Jesus was put to death in that very place, we will find life. As Jesus was considered a nameless and a voiceless and a faceless one, it will be in that very place that he will offer to everyone a sense of their dignity and self-worth in a way that no one else can. Because Jesus paid a price that no one else ever will for you and I. Uh, The question I want to ask you this morning is this. Are you trying to determine your worth by any other measure than the love of Christ? As you think about your worthiness, as you think about how uh, respectable you are or how valuable you are, how do you measure that? I think for so many of us, the greatest question that I think we ask in our lives, even especially in the college phase, is, am I lovable and am I valued? Will there be someone that at some point will come along and say, I would like not just to date with you, but maybe I'll spend the rest of my life with you. Really, as we wrestle with that, and as we wrestle with loneliness and dating, we are really wrestling with the question that is this, am I lovable and am I valuable? I think for so many of us, we try to answer that in a whole list of ways, and yet it cannot be answered profoundly and completely apart from the way that Jesus Christ has answered it, because Jesus Christ has paid a price that no one else ever will for you. I'll tell you in marriage, and as wonderful as my marriage is and as great as my marriage is, it cannot completely satisfy my need for love and my need for value. And I have an amazing marriage. And I think for so many of us, we are walking through life, and I want to ask you, how do you measure your sense of self-worth? How do you do that? I think ultimately, I think we sometimes run to the approval of man. We want to stack up as many uh, organizations, as many dates as we can, just so that we feel better about ourselves. I think for some of us, it's not necessarily the approval of people, but it is actually achievements. If I can achieve great things, I'll feel like my, my life is worthy of something. And yet I think what God has done for you and I is answered profoundly and completely in a way that no one else can, that you are infinitely valuable. You're valuable because you were created originally back in the garden in the image of God. He made you just as himself in a way that says you are valuable and you are significant. And even at the cross, what we find is even though we were hostile and even though we were enemies to Jesus Christ, Jesus died on our behalf so that we could have life and be reconciled because he loved us so greatly. I think what the cross shows us is the infinite love of Jesus Christ that is so much greater than anywhere else we will find. And secondly, I want to ask you guys, not just where you're measuring your own sense of worth, but this, are you stripping away another's dignity by your disregard of them? I think this is a great picture as men and women walk by. It's only Peter and John that will look at this guy and notice him. (laughs) They're the only ones that will recognize him and engage him as a person and as an individual. 
So I want to ask you this morning, as you look at the places that you move socially uh, on campus or in the community, uh, are you stripping away people's dignity by your disregard of them? The easiest application is simply to run to the poor, the elderly, the handicapped, and ask, how do you treat them? Uh, Do you extend to them value? Do you extend to them your time and your compassion? Or do you completely disregard them? I think we can go even in a more generic way and just say, are there people in your life that come across your path that you want nothing to do with? And so all you do, you do all you can just to disregard them and get away from them. I'll tell you guys, I feel like the Lord every semester, every year puts someone in my path consistently that gets under my skin and annoys me. All right. Uh, and I really wonder over and over again, Lord, why do you keep bringing them around? You know, I, I just, I struggle, you know, and, and I, and I've realized over time it, because it happens over and over again, that ultimately the Lord is trying to teach me this. Will you love people as I love people? Will you notice those that are unnoticed? Will you give a voice to those that are voiceless? Or will you continue to disregard and push people away because you don't think that they can build up your own sense of worth and establishment? I think for us, if we know that Jesus Christ can answer our sense of worth in a way that no one else can, then it's much easier for us to move towards those that may be voiceless and faceless and extend to them value and honor because ultimately in God's eyes, they are infinitely valuable because he's created them and he was crucified for them. And I think ultimately what we see in Peter and John is a great example of how we're meant to move into our community. And what I love about this picture is not just that God recognizes them, not just that he's compassionate, not just that he's loving towards them, but what I love even more is what Peter and John do on the behalf of this guy. They don't just say, hey, bro, I love you and I care for you tons. Good luck with all this, all right? But notice what happens. God is gonna not just recognize them, this guy, but the God is gonna ultimately remake this guy. Notice what happens, verse five. And so the beggar began to give uh, them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Ultimately, he's hoping that, hey, these guys have paid attention to them, so surely they will be able to give him some money, all right? His, his uh, hopes are lifted high, his expectations are raised, and yet Peter and John are come right immediately back and crush his expectations. Notice what they say, verse 6. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold. The very thing the guy was asking for, the guy surely thought was going to happen, he's surely going to get something to eat tonight. They say, hey, I know what you're looking for, I don't have, I'm sorry. Uh, this moment and this situation kind of reminded me of something that occurs often in our home. Uh, you guys may not know this about me, but I'm not a self-made man in terms of my fashion, all right? I rarely pick out my own clothes. I rarely get out of the house on a Sunday morning without checking with Marcy going, this, this, this working okay? All right, you know, I, I don't feel a lot of self-confidence here fashion-wise, and so I, I rightly lean on those who have greater experience and expertise than I do, all right? And yet something will occur in our home on a fairly consistent basis when Marcy actually will say to me, hey, how do you think this looks? And she's putting on an outfit or, Hey, should I wear this with that or that with this? And I always kind of look at her blankly and think to myself, do you know who you're talking to? Right? <laughs> do you know what happens on an almost daily basis? when I say to you, I have no idea what to wear. Can you help me? All right. And so why are you turning around asking me what I think, you know, because obviously I have no expertise in men's fashion. All right. And I sure as have no expertise in women's fashion. All right. And yet what I've learned from 10 years of marriage is this, that what she's asking me and what it sounds like she's asking me for is not really at all what she's asking. All right. What I've learned over time is that really what she's wanting and what she needs is simply a reaffirmation of what she thinks is best, all right? So men, learn from this, all right? Uh, My response back is, well, what are you going for? You know, what kind of look are you going for? Uh, Do you like this more with this or that with this? You know, kind of throw out some questions, kind of get a good sense of where she's already heading and then kind of put a stamp of approval. Yes, I like that, all right? Um, (laughs) Men, take note, all right? That That is ultimately what they're 
asking for. They don't really want to know what you think, all right? Uh, they just want some reaffirmation of what they're thinking, and they want to know that it looks right, all right? That's all I got to do, man. I know you greatly fear that question. Don't fear it, all right? Embrace it and go straight at it, all right? And so ultimately, I want to give my wife something even greater than she's asking. It sounds like she wants men's or women's fashions advice from me. She's not. She's wanting something even greater, all right? And Peter and John are going to recognize that with a beggar. They recognize as he's asking for alms that they're actually, they can't provide that, but they can provide something better and they're going to do that. Notice what happens in verse uh, six again. So Peter says, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene walk. If you were the beggar, what would you have thought in that moment? I think the beggar thought uh, as they addressed him and as they looked him in the eyes, he thought, I'm going to get some money. (laughs) So his expectations rose. And then when he says, I don't have, they say, I don't have silver and gold. I think his expectations went right back down to rock bottom, if not worse than that, right? And then they say, here's what I am going to do for you. I want you to walk. If you're the beggar who's been sitting there your entire life, what are you likely thinking? Man, uh, maybe I'm ready or maybe why are you messing with me and why are you mocking me? I've been this way from birth, right? And now you've given me attention. You're not going to give me money. And now are you just mocking me? In fact, it's interesting. I may be reading a little too much into this, but notice verse seven. Notice how the description of the miracle occurs. Verse seven, and seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up. Seizing him by the right hand. Uh, The Greek text there, the Greek word there could denote uh, that they had to overpower him simply because he was weak and he had no strength. So they had to uh, seize or, or overpower him up. Or it could have been that he felt mocked and he said, get away, you know, get away. And so, and so he's fighting them off, maybe even a little bit resistant, and they seize his hand, and, 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 the, and whether he was resisting or not, it was short-lived, because notice how immediately the miracle happens, right? Verse 7, and seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. The response of the miracle is immediate. They touch him, and he's healed. In fact, it's not a gradual warm-up process of walking. It's not like he's got to go through some kind of rehab process. And notice what happens in verse 8. And with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. This is no like three month rehab process. He is up immediately walking and, and it's, and it's not held back. He is just leaping and going crazy. Verse nine, and all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. It just struck me even reading it again in verse 10 that ultimately they had a former identity for this guy that is going to now be completely rewritten. Because what God will do for you and I, if we've trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and for eternal life is that he will completely remake our lives with a whole brand new identity. When God gets at work in us and when his spirit begins to move, it is not a slow, gradual ramp up process sometimes. Sometimes when he breaks in, he breaks in in marvelous, powerful, huge ways. And I think for so many of us, that's just not the view of God that we have. That's so not at all what our dreams are, our expectations are. And I think God breaks in in such a powerful way because I think for many, as they walked by this guy, I think many just wrote off this guy, just said, good luck. (laughs) Here's some money. But in the midst of this limitation, in the midst of the inability that you have, you're never going to walk. And they never thought he could. And I think what God will do for the beggar is often what he wants to do for you and I. And that's this is step into the midst of our greatest limitations and our greatest inabilities and rewrite the book on us. Uh, It's not just that he wants to recognize us and love us, but it's also that he's powerful enough to completely change and rewrite everything about our lives. 
I've told you guys this before, and I've, I've mentioned this before, but as I walked through college, my greatest insecurity or my greatest limitation, my greatest struggle was insecurity, all right? It owned me. Uh, it, it determined how I interacted with people. It determined even what I thought about vocationally in my life. Uh, it determined and had its fingerprint on every relationship and experience I had and the very way I thought. And what I want to ask for you this morning is, in a sense, this. Where do you see limitation and inability in your life? Ultimately, God is going to move and step into the life of a lame beggar and bring his limitations to light and overturn them. I want to ask for you, as you think about your life, where is it that you think God can't move? Where is it you think God is, in a sense, checkmated and can't do anything for you? Um, for me, it was insecurity through college. I thought, man, God, God can't do anything with me. Uh, ultimately, I was in fear. I, I hung back. I was quiet in social settings. Uh, even I've mentioned this to you guys before, but my greatest fear through much of college was public speaking. All right, <laughs> here we are. You know, um, in fact, even as I was an intern, and I graduated from college, I was an internship here, and, and the senior pastor at the time was doing a deal on public speaking, kind of a training deal that would culminate in us all giving a sermon. All right, and so I was so terrified of that moment in front of people that I scheduled it till uh, after. I got married and after I moved out of town so I could avoid it altogether. All right. Uh, I did not want to be up in front of people. I was so absolutely insecure that I could not overcome it. And one of the things I learned slowly, but surely over college was that in the midst of those things that you feel are so limiting, God can move and help you overcome those things. For me, it was insecurity. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe for you, it's in a personality element that you wish could just be different. Maybe for some of you, it's a body image thing that you thought, man, if I could just look differently or if this wasn't true about me, my life would be so much different. Maybe for some of y'all, it's a past experience that you have walked through that you think will forever determine your future. The reality is it won't. The reality is that it is in those places of limitation, in those places of inability that God loves most to step into, to overturn so that you see that he is glorious and able to do anything in your life. And sure, there may be elements that we struggle for the rest of our life. I still struggle at some level with insecurity and probably always will. But slowly but surely, God continues to free me of that issue. For some of you, it may be an overnight kind of thing. God breaks in and does something marvelous in your life and shows you that he is far more able and far more powerful than whatever limitation that you think that you have. That when God not only recognizes us and we know him, but then in relationship with him as his spirit comes in our lives, he moves to remake us and change us so that we are not the one we used to be. And we don't live like we used to live. We begin to live and begin to look and we begin to walk completely differently. What is that area of limitation in your life? What is that area of inability in your life? Second thing I'd say is, uh, do you need a bigger dream and how big is your God? I think for some of us, we look at those big limitations and we think they're giant rocks that can't be moved and yet we forget we have a God who can move any rock, right? And maybe for us, what we need to realize is that our God is far bigger than our limitations. Our God is far bigger than our past. And it may be about time that we begin to dream a little bit bigger. And ultimately, we begin to realize that the world may not offer us as much as we think it does. One of my favorite quotes comes from C.S. Lewis, and he says this, and some of y'all may have heard this before, but I think it says it so powerfully. Lewis will write, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. I think Lewis is dead on. 
Not just that we, sometimes we have a God that we think of that is not big enough, but even more so, I think uh, we think we've got to kill our desires. We've got to kill those things that drive us. And yet, I think what Lewis wants us to realize is that maybe we need to pursue some things with even greater passion. That we're far too easily pleased. We've become far too easily content. And ultimately, what God wants to do is something even greater than those things that we pursue in the world. That he's got a bigger story to write. He's got a greater desire and a plan for us if we'll just hand him our lives and allow him to begin to remake something that's way bigger and way better than anything we could ever imagine. You guys have been able to step into the MSC. For me, at least, I actually never got there until a few weeks ago to see kind of what A&M had done. And it was, it was amazing to see kind of how they took the old bones of the MSC and completely renovated it. And really I was thinking even this week as we were there on Wednesday for campus lunch that ultimately if a team of engineers for A&M as great and talented as they are can remake the MSC in that fashion, then how much greater can God remake our own lives? How much greater can he turn things inside out, overcome limitations, overcome inadequacies and write a story that is far different than anything that you and I could imagine or anything that we could write? God can renovate and remake in areas and ways that you think that he can in areas and ways that you think will never change. God is in that business and he takes great glory in that because no one else can overcome those except for him. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, let me encourage you to consider the the free gift that he's offered you and his son, Jesus Christ, who's paid the penalty for your sins so that you could be reconciled to him and realize that the story doesn't stop there. That ultimately, as you and I have trusted in Jesus Christ, as the spirit comes to begin to work in our lives and to transform us and to change us, he's beginning to renovate and remake our lives so that we are not who we once were. Our past will not determine our future. And that where we've been won't determine where we go. That ultimately God is in the business of completely remaking us. And the question is, will you let him? Will you believe that he can? That he loves you enough to recognize those limitations and he's able enough to remake those and overcome them so that you can be something that you can't even imagine right now. That's my greatest hope for us as a community and as a church is that God would remake our lives and write stories that we could never dream of. Because when you let him begin to work and you let him begin to drive your car, so to speak, that is your life, He'll take you places you can never have imagined and he'll use you in ways that you can never have imagined. If it will just say, here I am, do with me as you see fit. So let me pray for us. Father God, I give you great thanks. Um, that in the midst of those that are nameless and voiceless and faceless, when we even feel like we're alone, that you always see us. You're always that person that comes up on a hill uh, to visit us, to put a hand upon us and to say, I love you. And you do that in a way that no one else ever will. We said we thank you for the extravagancy of your love, how marvelous, how rich it is, that no one will ever come close to touching it in the way that you can display it, demonstrate it, and show it. And Father, I pray for us, whether we know you or we don't, Lord, I pray that you would allow us to find in your love a kind of contentment, a kind of sense of worth that we will never find anywhere else, and that you would allow us to answer that question once and for all and continue to return to the gospel that continues to speak that to us. For those of us who do know you, Lord, I pray that you would highlight for us those areas of our lives that we just think that you can't do something in. (laughs) Areas that we think will never be rewritten in a different kind of way. Areas that we think will always hold us back. And I pray, Lord, that you would begin to remake our lives. That you'd begin to show us in a fresh way your glory and your desire to move and to overcome the very things that we think will never change. Father, I pray that you'd do that in our lives and you would surround us with a kind of community that would encourage that process, that would affirm it and affirm what they see God doing in us, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit. Amen. Guys, thanks for being here this Sunday and we'll see you guys next week. Y'all have a great week.